I'm going to tell you a story. It's a good one. All right, from John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. There we go. Thank you. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, and whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus and his riddles. Okay. Now, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer, of course, in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea, Judea, Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. (sighs) Um, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that they meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. (laughs) And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Gross. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. I don't know if you guys know this, but Jews make a really big deal of mourning. It was chaos. Um, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were in their house consoling her, Mary, she saw Mary quickly rise and go out, and they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they had to move their big mourning party and follow her. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you lain lain him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Thank you, Emily. That's my bride. I like her. Well, thank you to those of you who are here to make our our service possible. 
uh, today to make our online service possible. We, we appreciate uh, the sacrifice that that entails. Um, and to those of you on- online, uh, we miss you. We hope to see you soon. Uh, let's jump into it. So some of you know that my, my job changed this year. I, I left the classroom to be our school's literacy coach. And one of the aspects that I, I love about this job is that it assumes I support uh, teachers throughout the campus, not just the English department. And so it's pretty typical for me to be seen at some point uh, during my day talking to a teacher in the hallway uh, as they vent about this or that. And generally, I'm pretty good uh, about just listening um, and being really patient with reserving my opinion until it's sought out. Uh, But there was one day last year where I messed up big time. I was approached by my friend on campus who uh, can be be clearly labeled an energizer bunny. Um, She clearly fits his label. She doesn't walk, she bounces, right? Uh, She has the voice of someone who works at Disneyland, the cats will get this reference, right? Who actually believes that it's the happiest place on earth. This is the kind of person she is, right? Get this, at, at lunch every day at school, she runs two to three miles, right? So she's the person that others go to in order to receive encouragement. So because of the pattern of her temperament, I think I kind of considered her invincible. And so when she came to me with complaints about her job, which were completely valid, uh, our district has put her through all types of trials, I assumed she was ready for some advice already on her mindset in the moment. I didn't spend sufficient time articulating my sympathy for her situation. I jumped into a look-at-the-bright-side perspective because in love, right, I wanted to move her towards a place of hope. Unfortunately, I I had not asked God for discernment in this moment, and I completely uh, misread the situation. So after my advice, she calmly stated, I think I need to take a break now because I'm feeling hurt. And so I start backpedaling, right? But it was too late. The damage was done. And so she yells, right, in in anger. And this is a person I've, I've coached really frustrating athletes with this woman. I've never seen her yell in anger. And she yells, you did this to me. You brought me to this level. And then she stormed back to her classroom. At that exact moment, a former student of mine walked by, and she kind of gave me this look like, you messed up, bro. (laughs) And she was right. I had indeed messed up. I had failed to align with Paul's admonition to mourn with those who mourn. And I think there are words we need to add to Paul's words to clarify what that means at certain times. Sometimes we need to hear the word exclusively, right, at the beginning of that admission. Exclusively, just, just mourn with those who mourn. Sit down, shut up, cry. At least initially, don't try to fix it, just cry. I believe that we'll see that modeled by Jesus in our text today. The other point that we'll come across today is it's, it's not always easy, right? I've actually become pretty comfortable um, with, with, with crying when that's necessary, but that isn't what everyone needs, and everyone grieves differently, and, and this is what complicates our task as Christians in implementing Romans twelve fifteen. Paul writes that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I think our interactions with others will be greatly helped by making a pattern of asking God for discernment 
in each situation. With those who is the key phrase I want us to take home today. It denotes an ability to align, to empathize, to become all things to all people. So that will be our goal to grasp today. Let's pray as we get started. God, I pray that you will uh, help me to, to come from a place of humility today as I advocate that we empty ourselves for the sake of others. Uh, allow me to do the same. I, I, I just thank you for your, your model of humility, God, that you give us. And I pray that you will be with these words today. Amen. So let's jump into John 11, uh, looking at some of the context uh, of this text. Uh, so there's a social political context. Going to Lazarus, Lazarus, whether to heal him, comfort him, or attend his funeral includes potential danger. Such a trip requires returning to Judea, which prompts his disciples to remind Jesus that the last trip included the Judeans attempting to stone him. Going to this part of town would not be safe for Jesus due to the rage that his message brought to its people. Because of Jesus' identity markers, central to his character, his mission, his ideology, conventional wisdom would suggest he avoid this area from now on. We ever heard this type of wisdom? We receive such wisdom to avoid areas such as the Middle East, the 1040 window, even places in our country. We avoid certain places in Southern California, maybe even our city. Jesus did no such thing. He did not take this wisdom to avoid places due to danger. There's a context due to the eternal plot line, if we can call it that. God the Father has preordained Lazarus to die and have a miraculous resurrection to reveal the power of his son Jesus. And so as the author of history, there's an element of the story that's just business, if that makes sense. It comes with the territory of writing a plot line. It's like if we watch a movie in which the main characters have to pull off some elaborate crime to get a little bit of cash, and you ask, why don't they just go get a loan, right? Or, or a movie where the fiancé has, has something he needs to tell his future bride, and every time he tries to get the conversation going, it gets hijacked, which continues all the way to the climax of the movie, right? And by now you've yelled at the screen, the screen ten times, why doesn't she just listen? We, we, got, we, we got some interactions with a TV in here, I like it. The answer to both is simple, right? Well, if they did that, there wouldn't be a movie, right? So they, that, that plot has to be there to carry on. Likewise, Jesus is stuck in this cosmic plot line, which brings the dilemma. His beloved friend is dying. Jesus is clearly capable of healing him. And yet for Jesus' earthly narrative to continue his plan, he must let his friend endure the pain of death. There's also a relational context. Jesus has a strong affection for Lazarus and his sisters. He is compelled by love. Love compels him to take a detour from his planned route to preach the gospel. Love compels him to return to a place where he had recently been persecuted, where he nearly escaped a violent death. And it is love for his friend that comes face to face with his eternal plan and creates the climax of our sermon and John 11, verse 35. And not necessarily the focus of our sermon today, but important for us to recognize as Christians, 
It's the love for all of us, the awareness and, and the eternal plan for the redemption of our souls that he allows his friend Lazarus to die before he arrives. So let's turn to our, our, our more narrow focus for today. We will see Jesus interact with Martha and second with Mary. His response is being tailored to the needs of each. Again, that's the reason for our focus on the phrase, with those who, from Romans 12.15. Let's reread the, the interaction with Martha. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha comes to him, and it's unclear if, if she's angry with Jesus for his timing. But what is clear is that she sets her emotions aside to make a request. Whether her motives are manipulative or pure in the state really can't be known, right? But to all of us who have lost those we love, we understand the plea that she makes. God, I understand the wages of sin is death. I know no human can escape physical death. But please, this person that I love, can they just be here a little while longer? Jesus responds in a very interesting way. His words mirror what he's already told his disciples about the reasoning behind his timing and his tactics. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Maybe Jesus took time to comfort her, but if he did, it isn't clarified in the text. What is clear is that he responds directly to the desire that she's indicating. She wants Lazarus alive, and Jesus ensures he will be. Martha says to him, yeah, 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 I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a good gospel message, right? Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. He speaks to her of theology. Now, this is kind of strange to me. He reinforces the Christology that he's been explaining to his disciples. In a sense, it's still just business. Martha comes asking if Jesus is capable of giving Lazarus life. Jesus directly states, Lazarus will live. And then he reinforces, he will bring eternal life to all those who believe in him. He then goes as far as to ask Martha if she believes. There's some audacity here. She replies that she believes he is the Christ. The word Christos is used here one of the few times this term is used by one of Jesus' contemporaries. So Jesus speaks straightforward to her in her grief due to her rare faith and the way she is reacting. She doesn't seem to request sympathy, and so that's not the focus of his exchange with her. He has discerned, and that's what's key here, he has discerned that hope is what she needs. She doesn't need sympathy. She doesn't need it this moment. She needs hope. And so he gives her certainty for Lazarus 
and hope for all who believe. We continue to look for straightforward answers in the Bible for how we're supposed to live in every scenario. And we continue to be confused when that's not what we find. Yes, biblical truth is absolute and unchanging, but it's also beautifully applied to every specific scenario we face. If God gave us just a list of rules, right? And then we just follow his list and we don't need him anymore, that's not really what he's about. In fact, isn't that what the Hebrews get blasted for throughout the Old and the New Testament? God gives them his word and they're like, we have a cheat sheet to life? We don't even need you anymore. Shut up, I get it. Right? Follow the Torah. You have to hook me up with blessings? Score. Right? But God's intention is not this. His intention is clear throughout the Bible and today. He wants to be with us. To be involved. If we took the book and don't interact with the author, we miss out on the ability to discern how to implement his will in each context. What Martha needs was completely different than what Mary needed. Jesus discerned that before he opened his mouth. So I ask us, how many of us have done the same in the last five months with COVID, the last two months in the wake of George Floyd's death? Do we ask God, what is this person need right now? Or are we simply focused on the opportunity we have to ensure my voice is, is given, my opinion is given? We must seek discernment from the Holy Spirit before speaking and acting. So Jesus' interaction with Martha is, is starkly contrasted with the interaction with Mary. Verse 28, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. As Emily said, they got to bring the, the whole Romans twelve fifteen with them. They get it, mourn with those who mourn. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, the first phrase will sound familiar, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the end of her statement. It's the same statement that Martha makes, and yet it is not followed by Martha's request. Martha, in her grief, hung on to hope. Mary, in her grief, could see no hope. Now please don't assume that this sermon is about comparing the grief of Martha and Mary. I would be insensitive and naive to claim that there are superior ways to grieve. I've experienced grief in which I felt hope in the midst of it, and grief in which I was unable to find the bandwidth for the slightest of hope. This sermon is about how we should respond to those who are in grief. And when Mary grieves differently than Martha, with a sense of despair, Jesus gives us the best model for instituting Romans 12.15. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. For Martha, Jesus demonstrated he was 100% deity. 
I mean, he's speaking theology fluently. He's prophesying. He's telling the end of the story, which includes eternal life for all those who believe in him. He tells her the plan, right? Lazarus is going to live again. But for Mary and the weeping Jews around her, he demonstrated he was 100% human. He saw their grief and he was troubled. It's as if he forgets the foreknowledge he just explained to the disciples and to Martha. He's just told his disciples he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like it was no big deal. No reason to rush over there. And then he sees people in grief. And the theology doesn't take priority anymore. The narrative doesn't take priority. People are hurting now. It doesn't matter that I know I'm about to resurrect this guy. They're heartbroken now. So I'm going to sit with them and I'm going to cry. Even if that's cosmically irrational. Because it is, right? We have to recognize that. If we're just talking about logic here, it's completely stupid for Jesus to be crying. He knows what's about to happen. He's about to remove the reason for crying. If my kid is crying because he's hungry and we're pulling into the driveway, I don't indulge him. Right? I say, we're about to make dinner. Then your hunger will be a problem in the past. Suck it up. Everything is going to be fine. I'm a mean dad. <laughs> but that's logical. right? I don't sit in the car with him, get out the tissue, so we can cry together about the misery that it's going to be to go without food for five minutes. But this is exactly what Jesus, the omnipotent, the omniscient God, does in this situation. He acts completely irrationally. Because sometimes true love is irrational. Because irrational love is what he's modeled for us throughout history. In fact, irrational love is probably a synonym for the gospel. This is what he models for us in Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Christ coming to humble himself for the sake of his enemies is completely irrational from a human perspective. Yet that is what agape love looks like. Agape love is irrational love. Times of mourning are the perfect place to demonstrate agape love. Mourning is a time to empty yourself. There are times in our daily routines that, that, that we put on, right? We put on masks of capabilities to do our job. We put on faces of confidence so we can lead others, and that's great. But mourning is the greatest excuse on earth to be real, to be authentic, and admit that we are incapable. We can't bear the burdens and sorrows of this world. You want to know what to do with those who are mourning? You crumble. You empty yourself. Empty yourself of your pride, your sense of socially correct behavior, your political values. Sometimes, even truths that will be helpful in conversation down the road, but will hit deaf ears in this moment of grief. We continue in verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
verse 35, Jesus wept. He wept irrationally. He wept irrationally with Mary who felt hopeless. Possibly with the same of the, some of the same people who persecuted him not long ago. And let's see what was produced by his irrational crying. Verse 36, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. This type of mourning over a man that he was about to resurrect demonstrated love. Everyone got it. They saw it. The all-powerful Jesus is heartbroken when I'm heartbroken. He must have loved him deeply. Interestingly, nobody said that after he spoke to Martha. Isn't that interesting? He gave Martha amazing news. Anyone who believes in me will have eternal life. They will beat death, this devastating phenomenon. And don't get me wrong, this should pump you up, right? This is the good news. But the good news didn't cause humans in their finite minds to see the love of God. But when he cried, when he didn't say anything impressive, he didn't make the Pharisees marvel at his knowledge, when he just shut his mouth and cried, the people saw his love. That's big. Sometimes we just need to shut up and cry. There's a time for theology. There's a time for hope. And there's a time for mourning. God will use each of these actions for His glory in the appropriate context. The message given to us in Romans 12.15, and I believe it's here in John 11, is that we need to constantly be asking God in every conversation, in every situation, God, what's the right move here? Which action of mine through the Holy Spirit will lead them to repentance? What does this person need most right now? I think most of us have learned this concept when it comes to funerals. Right? If I'm at a funeral, I'm not going to comfort the family with facts. I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm really sorry for your loss. You know, millions of kids die from starvation every day around the world. I get that you just lost someone, but you don't own the market on grief. Right? That might be true. It's true. But is it helpful? Two weeks ago, a ninth grader I worked with this year at Eisenhower was shot and killed. Upon hearing about that, should I call up the parents, lecture them on parenting choices, talk to them about the behaviors of teenagers in the inner city? No. It would be completely insensitive and unhelpful to the parents in that moment. I don't think it aligns with the admonition of Paul or the example of Jesus. You cry. I'm going to be honest, this was a tough kid to work with, but you cry. I don't care what he was doing at the time of his death, you cry. And if you can probably see where I'm going with this, Pray that we can humble ourselves as I ask us to reflect on how we've been ask, acting the last two months. On May 25th, George Floyd's murder was one of the most horrific acts I've ever seen. And in response, if you can think of it this way, there was a public funeral in the form of social media. Millions of people devastated by loss. Devastated 
by grief, by what in their experience seemed like incessant persecution. And in response to that grief, I, I will applaud. I've seen some attempts to mourn with those who mourn. But I've also seen a lot of counterpoints to grief, a lot of teaching about the other side, a lot of argument, questioning the morality of the man who had just died. And maybe it's because we've been here too many times, so we've become desensitized. Maybe it's because we're too far removed. But the lack of love in this moment, to me, is just mind-boggling. Imagine being a family member of his. You go on to Facebook or you turn on the news, and the world is politicizing the death of your baby boy, your brother, your father. They're not crying with you. They're using him for their own agenda. And I'm not trying to politicize the sermon. I know it's not British MO to do the contextual application for you. We generally complete the exegesis of the text, allow you to do the application at home. But hasn't it been a little bit uncomfortable to read through Romans 12, 15 over and over again in church the last six weeks as we work through Romans 12, knowing full well that our American Christian brothers and sisters have not embodied its admonition? Hasn't it bothered you that we're learning about genuine love and we don't see it around us? The first week we, we got to this passage in Romans 12 as a church, I'll be honest, I just I felt sick. As we sat here and we heard the message of how we're supposed to be treating others, and we're not doing it. Let love be genuine. Outdo one another in showing honor. Bless those who persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Are we seeing harmony in our world? If your enemy is hungry, feed them. Where is that? Where is that happening? And your counter-argument might be in your head, well, you're talking about the world, and the world isn't going to act like Jesus, but I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christ's bride, the church. I've had to private message several friends and ask, hey, have you looked at your profile as a whole for the last two months? And maybe that's something I would charge us to do, is to look back over if you If you're into social media and you do a profile, look at your posts over the last couple of months. If it's just conversation, you don't do social media, think back over your conversations. Again, there's going to be a time for correction, for rebuke, for counter-argument. But if someone pulls up your profile and there isn't a single mention of grief, a single mention of sorrow, of empathy, in whatever way possible, Right? If the world doesn't see us grieve, and then we want to take that moment to teach them, we want to bring the gospel now without love, without humility, it's a funeral. We're at a funeral. It's a two-month-long, maybe 400-year-long, depending on how you look at it, but it's a funeral. Grieve with those who grieve. Jesus had just given theology to his disciples who needed to hear theology and hope to Martha who needed hope. And then Mary needed to cry, so Jesus just cried. And because he was able to stop himself from saying, 
well, actually, there's nothing to cry about. I'm about to fix it as we speak. Because he was able to align with their pain in that moment, they were moved to see the depths of his love. So it's probably time for some disclaimers, some qualifiers. I've taken a passage and applied it to a part of the scenario in our current context. I'm quite aware I haven't given admonitions on all sides of these scenarios. I'm giving the analogy of what to do in a funeral, but I haven't given advice on how to interact six months after the funeral. I haven't mentioned what's the right time to bring up theology and the gospel and hope. So if you're struggling with that or you're upset at an angle that I took as I attempted to extract truth from the text and apply it to our context, let's talk, right? That's what we do. I want us to wrestle with these concepts. That should be why we preach so we stir things up and we can talk about it. But I will confidently say that how you act at a funeral will affect when you earn a seat at the table to bring the gospel of hope and eternal life. This specific racial scenario will pass. This specific pandemic will pass. New debates will form, new tensions and disagreements. And all of these scenarios, let's take on a with-those-who approach. Let us beg God for discernment of how to align in whatever minute way possible. Because let's be honest, some ideologies make this task very challenging for followers of the Bible. If you're in a situation right now and your, your brain is just exploding because you can't figure out how to become all things to all people, come see one of us elders and let's consult God together about it. It's definitely not always easy. Let's model ourselves after the humility of Christ who emptied himself of his rights in order to become approachable for humans. I think I'd like to end us uh, with a, a, a verse that I should probably memorize um, because it was probably written for hard-headed, forgetful people like me. Uh, so 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's really kind of a funny verse if you think about it, right? <laughs> it's Peter's way of saying, look, if you got nothing going for you, you got no skills, you're a bumbling idiot, you put your foot in your mouth all the time, you mess up every scenario, then you'd better have shown people you love them sincerely in Christ. Because demonstrating a pattern of love for people covers a lot of your mistakes when you mess up. Amen? Amen, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your truths exist uh, regardless of us. That your truth is absolute. It will not change. You have established a a system of who you are. And yet, God, we, we thank you that we are able to look at those eternal truths and see how they apply to our lives. I pray that as we do so, we would be willing to disagree. We would be willing to get it wrong. And we would come before you and say, God, you've you've given us great things to live by, and I don't always get how to implement them. So will you be with me now? Will you give me discernment? 
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.